welcome to episode number 13 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I am your host, and I sincerely hope that this conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. Today, you are in for a real treat. I'm really excited. My guest back on the podcast is Dr. Shane Wood, and he is helping us understand a genre of literature in the Bible that's called apocalyptic literature, right? Two keynote books that are written in the style are the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. And for those of you who may not be aware, I mean, there's some odd images in here, like with dragons and fighting, eating babies. It's weird. And and some of these are even scary. And, And even stranger are the timetables that kind of people go off the off the grid on trying to figure out all of this stuff. I mean, what in the world is going on here? Well, Shane, he did his PhD work under some of the leading experts on the book of Revelation. And so I asked him if he wouldn't mind just taking some time out of his day to help us become better Bible readers by unpacking this literature. And you are in for a very, very eye-opening conversation. And so here is my conversation with Shane. Well, I'm honored to have as my guest, Shane Wood. Shane, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Skylar. I appreciate it, man. Well, Shane, I know you um, I, I know you from Ozark and my time uh, there and taking some of your classes. But uh, for those um, who are listening and watching this who don't know who you are, could you just give us a little bit of introduction, you know, who, who you are, what do you do in... And I know you've spent a lot of time, um, a lot of your academic focus, focusing on Revelation. And so mm-hmm. maybe you could share a little bit about what led you in that direction. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, well, who am I? Uh, I'm a husband of, whoa, man, 17 years. So we're in our 17th year, four kids. Awesome. Uh, I've been teaching full-time at Ozark. This is my 10th year. Um, wow. So I'm the professor of New Testament studies, associate academic dean, uh, here at Ozark Christian College, Joplin, Missouri, and yeah, I've I've matter of fact, my master's thesis was on the Book of Revelation, and I did my PhD at the uh, University of Edinburgh in Scotland on the Book of Revelation. So I have spent a little bit of time to it, and frankly, uh, what brought me to it was um, I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, I just in in growing up in the church, I actually grew up in a tradition that we did not talk about Revelation whatsoever. Uh, it wasn't a sermon. It wasn't, um, you know, Sunday school. We just did not talk about it. And so I remember um, being a junior, senior in high school and basically having a blood red moon in front of me as I'm driving down the road and freaking out. I'm like, oh, no, the world's going to end. And, uh, and so I read Revelation for the first time at like 1.30 in the morning. Uh, <laughs> and that was my first interaction. And I walked away with more questions than answers. And and so once I got into college, um, taking the course, it grabbed a hold of my heart and just hasn't hasn't let go. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I imagine that your perspective has changed uh, quite a bit as you studied it. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, I was talking about this a little while back with a with a with a church uh, small group. Um, it's fascinating because I I don't remember ever a sermon or a lesson being taught on it. And yet, whenever I thought I had a question about the end of the world, I immediately went to Revelation. So somewhere along the line, I had this assumption, what I had primarily heard would have been more of your um, kind of left behind series, rapture. And so that was kind of where I started, but it, but it is not where I've ended. Okay. 
Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome. You know, and there's, uh, Shane, there's, um, there's some weird stuff in there. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say that. Um, but you know, we are, you're going to, we're in a series of Daniel and, um, Daniel seven onward, it gets weird. And there's a lot of really confusing stuff. And for I know a lot of Christians, um, um, the obscurity causes us to run in the opposite direction. And so rather than diving in and investigating, you know, we just kind of, we, we don't, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually writing about this in a, a book that I'm working on right now um, about our, our addiction to familiarity. And, and that's one of the things when it comes to Daniel seven through 12 and the whole book of revelation, it's just, it's so unfamiliar. Um, and we crave familiarity because we think there's security there and there's foundation there. And when we come to these books, we either do one of two things. We either completely ignore it, you know, treat, you know, instead of 66 books in the Bible, we have like 65. And mm. if you cut out half of Daniel, then I guess we have 64 and a half. But, uh, or what we do is we obsess over it uh, because we're, we're grasping at answers. We're looking for a place to actually make this apocalyptic genre, these these weird images have a home. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we crave the familiar and the books are just not familiar at all. The imagery is, it's okay for you to call it weird. It's, it's terrifying. <laughs> you know, Revelation 12, there's dragons trying to eat babies. Like, where do you find that in the gospels? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, okay. So uh, thinking of like Revelation and Daniel, right? Those are the, the two kind of, I'm, uh, interesting images and, and fearful images. Um, they've often uh, have been ascribed the title apocalyptic. Yeah. And I know um, I, I've kind of been studying a little bit about that, but what in the world is apocalyptic writing? Yeah. Yeah. It's a $25 word. So uh, it, it kind of deserves somewhat of a $25 definition, but it doesn't mean we can't break it down. Uh, but I describe apocalyptic, or I define describe apocalyptic literature. It is, it is a group of texts. And notice how that's an important piece to this because there isn't, the book of Revelation is the only one in the New Testament that, that the whole book is apocalyptic, but there are other apocalyptic books even outside of Daniel and Revelation. They're just not in our Bible. So this wasn't, that's one of the things, even though this genre was, is unfamiliar to us, it was not unfamiliar to the Jews and the Christians of the first century. Mm. It was very familiar. Um, but it's a group of texts uh, that are communicating, I, I'm going to use fancy, funny words, but transcendent realities. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, things that are beyond what we can see and our senses can apprehend. Mm. They're, they're, you know, it's kind of like um, trying to describe love. Uh, that's a transcendent reality that, that manifests itself right here. But revelate or apocalyptic texts are talking about that which is beyond what words can contain. So transcendent realities, oftentimes communicated by otherworldly beings. So most apocalyptic texts will have um, angels that are interpreting things or guiding uh, whoever it is. Or even like in the book of Revelation, um, you have an elder, chapter 5, who comes alongside. But they're otherworldly beings. They're not other humans in the sense of on this earth. They are in the realm beyond us. And so you have transcendent realities often communicated or, in, or interpreted by otherworldly beings that are heavily laden with symbolic language, which frankly, that shouldn't surprise us um, because uh, whenever you're trying to talk about things that are beyond what words can contain, you always move into the realm of poetry, always. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so if I talk about my love for my kids or for my wife, um, eventually I will get to the point where language can no longer contain what is true. So I try to grab towards symbols or poetry because the reality is beyond what words can really contain. Hmm. And my last part of my definition is, um, so it's heavily laden with symbolism. Usually it's a text that emerges also in a time period of, of either perceived or real persecution. Hmm. Uh, so it's usually a time period of strain or a stress where people are asking questions like, where is God? Or, um, you know, has he abandoned us? Or like, I think the Revel people of Revelation were asking the question, you know, John's the last living apostle. He's been exiled on the island of Patmos. After he dies, then what? Does Rome win? Like, are we really the kingdom? Did we really succeed? And so it's this type of a strain. At times, there's physical, non-physical persecution that's happening around it. And these texts then emerge to try to surface the emotions that are behind a lot of our questions, which a lot of the times uh, we try to act like that emotions are evil, but they're very holy. <laughs> Yeah. So that's my big definition for it. Okay. Okay. Now um, I know like a lot of people I've, I've talked with, um, uh, you know, I guess apocalyptic literature kind of, uh, or the apocalyptic um, writings we have in the Bible mm -hmm. is kind of code language for, um, or it's an extended um, language for prophecy, you know, Sure. Is, uh, is there like, is there a connection between, you know, um, I guess prophecy and apocalyptic literature? Is there yeah, actually there really, really is. Matter of fact, the intent, um, a lot of them are very similar. Now, um, prophetic, prophetic literature, it's one of those things where you need to think of apocalyptic and prophetic kind of doing this. They are different and unique, but they do overlap at a certain point. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, our definition of prophetic literature is really starts to mess it up. Uh, we think prophecy equals prediction, oh. um, and that's actually just not the case. Um, and so um, I've, I've said elsewhere and written elsewhere that, you know, if you look up the words prophecy, prophesy, and to prophesy throughout the entire Bible, so Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, every time these three words are used, um, you find that they're in the context of a, pro of a prediction around 83% of the time. Or, I mean, excuse me, they're in the context of a prediction around 17% of the time, oh, which wow. means 83% of the time, those prophecy, prophesying to prophesy has nothing to do with the prediction at all. The, so what, what that tells me then is two things. Number one, it's not that prediction is not a part of the definition of prophetic. It's just that it doesn't dominate the definition of prophetic. It's, it's a part of that definition, about 17% of it. But there's 83% of prophetic literature that, that, that has to do with something completely outside of just predicting something. Mm. Um, so prophetic literature, we really need to kind of situate better. And if we do that, then it'll make more sense with the apocalyptic genre itself. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, um, that's that's fascinating. Shane, I, I did not know that um, you said 17%. Is that right? It's in, yeah, those three words, prophesy, prophecy, and prophesy are in the context of a prediction 17% of the time. How did we get this backwards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, here's why that's both a valuable question and why I think the answer is uh, probably something we don't want to hear. It's valuable because it really is a case study in the way in which sometimes things just get away from us, uh, where, where we become enamored with a piece of something. And we do this with God all the time. We become enamored with a piece of God, but we allow it to be the very definition of God. And as a result, he's less than. 
we do this with the gospel. So sometimes we, we become so focused on atonement theories that we, that we forget that the gospel is not just an atonement theory. It's mm. bigger than that. It includes it. You can't have the gospel without it, but it is not all that it is. Why, though, do we do this with, perfect, with, with uh, prof- prophetic literature? Um, the answer is because, uh, well, it's twofold. Number one, we're enamored with the future because if we can tell the future in some sense, we can control it. Uh, and, and we're obsessed with controlling. And number two, if we can make books like apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature, all about the future, then we can bypass them challenging our, our disobedience in the present. We want to avoid that conversation. But I'll tell you this, that 83% of prophetic literature is about just that, disobedience of God's people. And we don't really want to talk about that. We'd rather talk about, hey, let's just talk about what's in the future. Yeah, wow, interesting, interesting. Um, that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, well, Shane, as, you know, just kind of as an American I, uh, I want information to be like straightforward, black and white. And when I'm reading like a book like Revelation and Daniel, I am tempted to ask God, why did not, why did you not speak in simpler and clearer language? <laughs> you know, yeah. just not know that I'm going to be reading this, you know, however many thousand years later, um, I guess, you know, do we need apocalyptic scripture? You know, like what yeah. do we gain from this? Is there, is there something yeah. No, that's a great question because at times it can be frustrating. And, and I think even beyond your question, there's a part of this that we're asking, God, are you just trying to play games? Mm. Like, like, what are you playing? Are you being coy with me? Why not just shoot me straight? Because, I mean, if you're giving me some communication of the truth, I'd rather know whether or not I know what it is that is true instead of trying to guess. To which my response would be this, a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, the reason why we need apocalyptic literature is because God didn't just make us as brains. Mm. We, are, we are far more complex than just information receivers. Um, information receivers are computers. <laughs> we, we were made holistically. This even goes back to a comment I just made earlier. Our emotions are holy. Mm. Um, so I'll even have people be like, well, I want to make sure that I'm not making an emotional decision. To which I my response is, no, all decisions are emotions. Like matter of fact, the reason why you even think something is right and something is wrong is because all of the evidence gets you to a point that then you have, you have to say, what do I feel about the evidence? Like, so even our rational decisions aren't made divorced of emotions. It's just that oftentimes what we do, not just in America, but in the Western modernist world uh, is we prioritize rationality over emotions as if emotions are evil. Mm. Here's the problem. That's not how God made us. He made us far more complex than just a brain. He made us emotive beings too, where emotion is what draws us towards things that we value, like love. It also is what pushes us away uh, from things that are dangerous. Um, Emotions are powerful and they do move us. And the apocalyptic texts are intentionally attacking that emotional aspect of us. It is saying something in you has gone dead and we need to reignite it. Mm. Um, Now, here's the thing that's fascinating. Um, We will talk about wanting it to just be um, straight told to us. But God did that with the Ten Commandments, and we see how that worked out. (laughs) Matter of fact, if we know anything about American litigation, we know that anything that's just told to us directly, we can find a way around it. Mm. What the apocalyptic texts do is they invite you into a story. 
Um, this is the reason why the Gospels are what start the New Testament. We don't have Jesus writing down his sayings. They come in a narrative. Why? Because in a narrative, you're not just receiving information. You're participating in the actual um, events that are unfolding. And that's what apocalyptic texts offer. They offer you to not just be an observer or a scribe. They offer you the opportunity to participate in the narrative that God's calling us to. Interesting. I mean, it's almost like God knows how to communicate to people, <laughs> you, know, you know, getting, you know, not just <laughs> delving in, in logic and reason and, and that kind of stuff, but also speaking to the heart and making sure yeah. God will awaken and challenge the things deep within us. Um, yeah. What do we, what do we lose Shane? If, if we, um, if we, I guess if we fail to interpret apocalyptic literature, the way God wants us to interpret, like what do we lose if we fail to interpret it or we misinterpret it? What are, what are some uh, dangers there? Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a, whew, that's a good question. Um, and I, I think that there are certain things we definitely lose. Um, and there's also things that we create that we probably wish we didn't create. Um, so there's, there's really two kind of ways I would approach that. The first one is, um, uh, a lot of times what we lose is we lose a, a sense of um, direct confrontation and transformation by the text. Um, so a lot of our approaches to Revelation are about predicting the sequence of events that come. Here's one of the things. So I, I just launched a whole uh, online course on Revelation uh, through this organization called the Garden City Project. And, oh. and, and this is, they were like, what do you want to call it? What do you want to call the t the, this, this course? I said, the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and they were like, why? I say, cause that's the first like five, six words of the book. Yeah. Like, like we, it, it's amazing to me how terrified we are of revelation and of, 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 of John. Uh, I mean, of uh, Daniel, excuse me. Um, but what we lose is we lose these powerful pictures of Jesus, these powerful pictures of God. I believe that uh, I don't just believe I, I, I think prophetic literature proves this. Um, that the number one purpose of apocalyptic and prophetic literature is to reveal clearly who God is. And my goodness, we accuse God of all kinds of crazy things based off of our misinterpretations of the text mm. of the apocalyptic text. I mean, it's one of the number one reasons why, you know, God gets accused of being almost like out of control, angry. It's one of the number re one reasons why we, uh, you know, we accuse uh, God of even being bloodthirsty or playing games with us. And so for me, what, one of the things that we lose by either ignoring the apocalyptic texts or by misinterpreting them is we lose these beautiful pictures of who Christ is um, that the gospels point to, but revelation exaggerates. Uh, so one of the things I love, and I even do this in that course is I just say, we're going to look at these pictures of Jesus when they emerge and we're going to sit in them and we're going to be saturated in them. Why? Because the number one way to correct your disobedience is to have a clearer picture of who God is. I mean, that's, so if you can exaggerate the picture, like you find in Daniel of both God and of both evil, then that exaggeration clarifies the teams and the call. Like, so there's a part of this where my wife says this to me, she jokes, you know, cause I've done so much work on revelation. She's like, you know, you do know there's other books in the Bible, don't you? <laughs> and this is my response. I said, here's the problem. Revelations just not let me go yet. The transformation that it calls me to the pictures of God that it presents me are so rich 
that it clarifies not only who he is, but who am I in light of that? And ultimately then what I'm supposed to do. Um, so, you know, from Ozark days, that's a quote that I've, I've shaped a lot of, you know, my Christian life around. The more you tell someone who they are, the less you have to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. And in the book of Revelation, that's what it's doing. It's preventing, it's presenting a picture of who Christ is that's so clear, that is so beautiful and so stark that it gives you your identity and then your actions should follow. And we lose that. Um, so a lot of people, so for example, 2001, the book comes out. It is a massive bestseller called The Purpose Driven Life. I mean, and I don't know, I mean, people that might be listening to this, they might remember this, but Rick, you know, Rick Warren, wonderful pastor, writes this book, The Purpose Driven Life, and it sells millions of copies to, to, to Christians. Here was the question that was on the front of the book. What on earth am I here for? And my, I remember thinking about this in the early 2000s. I'm going, why are millions of Christians buying this book? Answer, because they don't know what they're here for, because they don't know who they are, and they don't know what they're doing. And this was my second thought. If we had a better interpretation of the book of Revelation, that question would be answered for us. Mm. But we don't. And so we lose this. We lose our identity because we don't, we don't get to have these pictures of Jesus as this slain lamb on the throne or this white, this, you know, rider on the white horse with, you know, tattooed with, you know, the uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we, we don't have this picture of, of Jesus as this, as this child that's being rescued from the clutches of a dragon. And these pictures remind us of his humanity, but ultimately the, the divinity um, that, that come together in this one incredible savior. Hmm. Man, that's good. Um, so, okay, Shane, um, thinking of, I guess, um, I mean, this whole, this whole genre, this whole, um, uh, body of literature, this grouping of literature and, and specifically what we have in, um, Revelation and, and Daniel, um, there is, um, some divergent views that are out there. And, you know, one of the things that you've, you've shared with me, um, I mean, you've, You've done a lot of work overseas with um, um, just in, incredible Bible scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess, can you like help us understand like what is um, what is the dominant view? Um, mm-hmm. that, uh, well, I, I know that's kind of a loaded question, so maybe sure. <laughs> maybe I should ask that. You know, like why are so many? Why do people like what are the views that that um, common views that a lot of people have yeah. when when it comes to this literature? Like, why do we have yeah. this view? And then what is like the reaction that a lot of like, I guess, Bible scholars have toward this? No, that's, that's a great question. Uh, matter of fact, so let me, let me go ahead and, and show my cards a little bit. And so that people can get, you know, upset with me. And this is where I usually get some nasty emails, but yeah, um, emails, Shane, you know, I, I actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my email is, you know, elmer.skyler at, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, um, I, I, I get this question a lot. Uh, because I don't actually believe uh, that the rapture is biblical. Mm-hmm. And I have lectures on my website and I have lectures on right now media describing why um, part of it is biblically. Like you just look at the text that they're bringing out, like Matthew chapter 24, uh, you know, verses 39 and 40, where, you know, two are walking in the field, one is taken and one is left. The problem is, is that in the context, it's actually the evil that are taken away like the days of Noah, where the evil are swept away and the good stay on the earth that is a new creation. Um, so textually, 
whenever you look at it, it's like even, you know, first Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, uh, you know, where we, where we meet him in the air. It's like, but the word that, 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 that is used for meet apontasis means as the emperor is coming into your city, you don't let them get to the gate before you come, before you meet them or greet them. Mm. You meet them on the way as they're coming to your city. You meet them way outside the gate. That's the word. So it's not this like, go meet them in the air and hang out for seven years. Um, But also the problem is historically, problem historically is, is that the first time in the history of the church, that the concept of the church being pulled out before a time period of tribulation, the first time that was ever mentioned was in 1830 by a woman by the name of Margaret MacDonald, who in Scotland put herself into a trance, uh, self-induced fever. And she wrote down actually in one of the the books that I have on my shelf back there, um, um, I have her letter that's replicated Um, and you read it and it's, it, it is. And then John Nelson Darby ends up developing the theology around it and takes it over to America and, and one of the things that's fascinating whenever I go through this history is you start to realize how in 180 years, I mean, now at this point, 190 years, um, 190 years, how a position that the church had never held becomes the dominant position. Yeah. And so one of the things that's fascinating is I'll talk to people at churches and I'll, I'll make this statement that, you know, Revelation's goal is not to predict your future. It's to transform your present. Mm. And number one, I'll have some people that are angry. Well, I thought it was supposed to predict. I thought it was... And number two, I'll even have people at times that are relieved, but they'll say things like this. How come I've never heard that? And my response is, well, what do you think is going to sell better? Me telling you that, that whenever persecution comes, Christ calls you to endure or that before it comes, you're going to get pulled out. What do you think people are going to buy more? I was like, my, my position suffers from bad marketing, but my position doesn't suffer from being new. As a matter of fact, what I'm describing here about the rapture, and that's actually been the dominant position in the history of the church for the past 2,000 years. Mm. So I actually, I actually had a weird moment. I'm, uh, and, and biblical scholars today, um, the dominant view is not the concept of the rapture, seven years of tribulation for Revelation. That's just not. So I'm, I'm in the British New Testament conference a couple of years ago, and I'm presenting a paper on Revelation. And we're actually at Nottingham. So we're, we're in the UK. And I'm sitting around this table with all these British scholars. And finally, me and this other, this other fella um, was, a, was from America. And they, they kind of stopped. And these are like, these are big names in Revelation you know, uh, circles, like Ian Paul and Steve Moyes. And, and they're like, hey, we just have a question for you two American young guys. They're like, um, do, do your churches really believe this idea of a, of a rapture and like this tribulation? Do they really believe that? My first thought was, wait a minute, what? Like, that's not dominant over here? And they were like, no. And my second response, I says to him, I said, but here's the thing. Y'all sent it to us. <laughs> like, I'm like, like, it started in Scotland and then came over 1830. Um, but no, dominant, the dominant view biblical scholars is not the rapture view that, you know, is portrayed in the Nicolas Cage movie. Um, <laughs> it, it's just not. It has a lot more to do with... Um, with, with John talking to the, to the churches of Asia Minor in the first century that were having the, 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 the Roman Empire pressing in on them more intensely, both physically and non-physically, and, that, and they were struggling with being faithful in the midst of the Roman imperial pressure. Mm. And John, God says, I need you to write, John, I need you to write a letter to these churches because you're their pastor. You're their minister. That's, that's what most biblical scholars focus on. Um, and we can apply it to today, but that's one of the things we forget. Every book in the New Testament 
we are overhearing a conversation. It was written to someone else first. And by God's grace, we get to overhear that conversation. My problem with a lot of the ways that we study Revelation is we hijack the conversation and make it about us, and they don't even get a word in edgewise. Mm. Interesting. Man, that's good. Um, there, Shane, there's, there's so much right there. And um, I'm, I'm sure that everybody listening to this are going to hit pause and then go back <laughs> and re-listen to that. Um, that's really good. Um, so, okay, Shane, what advice? Um, I mean, the, these are odd images um, in Daniel with the, the four, you know, the mm. different beasts that, you know, that come out of the water mm-hmm. and, you know, Revelation, you got a dragon. Um, they're odd images. We're, you know, we're not used to hearing that. What advice would you give to reading a book like Daniel or Revelation mm-hmm. for all of its worth? And yeah, no, that's... I guess at the tail end of that, um, would you recommend any, I guess, introductory resources and advanced yep. resources? No, that's awesome. Um, yeah, let me let me let me tackle that that first part. Um, you might have to remind me about the resources because my brain was going off on the uh, on the um, how do how do we read this for all it's worth? Um, usually, what I teach is I say I teach context, and and I and some of those you know that you know you've been to you know Bible college and and some people that have been studying the Bible for a while think like well that's that's it. Actually, I know that may sound basic, but it's pretty profound. Um, because, because of this statement, if you take the Bible out of context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And, and, but the reality is, is God has made us in his image and we need to resist the temptation to craft him in our image. And part of doing that is respecting the context of what it is that's been written. So when, whenever I, whenever I teach people about revelation, I say, we're going to, you know, do, there are three levels of context that I would actually challenge you in apocalyptic text to take into consideration especially when you come across an image. Number one, when you come across an image, do all lowercase context. Just read four verses before and four verses after. It is amazing how often when you do that, embedded in those eight to 10 verses, you find the answer to the question of what is this image trying to communicate? But usually we grab one verse, pluck it out, and then we, we get confused. You know, like, what is the mark of the beast? And we grab it and we, we, we have all of these different theories about microchips and all. And I'm going, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Just read four verses before and after. And it tells you what it is. It's not that hard. But, but we don't do that. And so instead we get all excited and we get all just four verses before, four after. The second thing I do is I say this. Can, yeah, go ahead. Can you, can you give us an example of that? Of yeah. Life. Um, you mean you mean just yeah. like in general or or like yeah okay like, so sorry go ahead no I was just gonna say one of the examples I use because it's so stark it it actually comes from the book of Acts so please forgive me that it's not an apocalyptic text but uh, but I, I I pull out of context Acts chapter seven verse sixty where it says and he got down on his knees and he closed his eyes and he prayed do not hold this sin against them. And then it says, he closed his eyes and went to sleep. I said, if you take that out of context, you could sit there and think, oh, okay, somebody before they went to bed, maybe had a bad day, an argument with someone. They asked Lord, eh, don't hold it against them, and then went to sleep. But if you read four verses before and four after, you realize that's the stoning, the killing of Stephen. Oh. And actually what you see is, is that he is doing what Jesus did on the cross to the people that's killing him. He's asking that the Lord forgive them. And then he closes his eyes and goes to sleep. Because for Christians, matter of fact, the metaphor of sleep is fascinating. Whenever we talk about sleep, we always have an assumption. 
when you go to sleep, you wake up. It's not the end of the story. Oh, mm. And so a Christian's death is super important to make it not seem like it's the end of everything. So you give an image that allows you to understand that even though he's closing his eyes to this world, it's not the end of the story because when he closes his eyes here, he opens his eyes up to Jesus in the next place, the next world, heaven. So how did I get to that answer for that image? Four verses before and after. That's it. it, it the problem is we don't do this even in, even in the texts that aren't apocalyptic. Mm. We just grab one, run with it. The problem is at that point, um, you're making the text say things a lot of times it just doesn't want to say. Um, the second thing I do, though, is I say capital C context. Take that image and go to you know, blueletterbible.org and look up the word for the image you want to look up. That's a great free resource online um, where you can do word studies. And you ask this question, how is that word or that image used in the book, in the whole book of Revelation? Because a lot of times what you'll find, it's been used multiple times in the book. And usually the first time, it's the most clear. So for example, the word key in Revelation chapter 20, verses one and two, the angel comes down from heaven, binding the dragon with a chain and holds a key. I mean, you might be going, well, what's the key for? Well, if you, you realize the key is actually used four times in the book of Revelation. And the very first time it's used is in Revelation chapter one, verses 17 through 18 where it talks about Jesus says, you know, behold, I am alive forever and ever. I once was dead, cross, but look, I am alive, resurrection, forever and ever, and I hold the key over death and Hades. So key in that sense then is sovereignty or authority over death and Hades attained at the resurrection and at the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Hmm. And every time the word key is used in Revelation, it always assumes that context. So, so people a lot of times are get confused when they're like, well, when is Satan bound and is it the future? And I'm going, it tells you through the image key. It's happening at the Christ event. It's, it's there. We just, we're not looking at the image through the whole book. Mm. And then here comes the big one, especially for Revelation. All capital letters context. If you don't know an image, look in the Old Testament for it. Mm. Why, why do I say that? By my count, 404 verses of Revelation, by my count, there's over 516 allusions to the Old Testament, which means there is over one allusion to the Old Testament in every single verse. Wow. So if you do not know your Old Testament, you will, you will make up all kinds of crazy stuff for the images of Revelation. But, but if, you, if, you, if you know the Old Testament and you look up the images like of the two witnesses and you look it up in Zechariah, Zechariah tells you what the two witnesses are. The king and the priest. <laughs> it's... Like, it, it's, not a, it's not a code to crack. John thinks he's giving you all the answers. You, <laughs> you, but we don't know the Old Testament. So instead, we're going like, what is he talking about? The images are not that difficult to crack. We just, we just, don't, we just, don't, we just don't know our Old Testaments. Mm. So that's, that's how I would say that's a, a good way to approach the images. And when you start taking the Old Testament and allowing it to speak into the context, and when you look at the images in the book, and when you look at the verses before and after, all of a sudden the messages start to come alive in a way that is startling. Mm. And truthfully, here's my caution, truthfully, get ready because it will challenge you to transform in a way that you probably will just want to resist. Um, it, it, it will... It will, you, you will want to fight it. Yeah. Um, okay. I think you had another part of the question. Resources, right? Yeah. Yeah. Resources okay. for somebody who's kind of like um, 
getting getting their feet wet on it and somebody maybe more advanced absolutely let me I, I please please hear my heart in this i hope this does not come across vain that's not my goal it's just a gift i i try to offer to the church for free yeah. Um, so the, one of the first places I tell people, I'm like, Hey, if you don't know where to go and you just want to have a place to start, even if you hate everything that you hear, at least it starts a conversation. Um, I have a website, shanejwood.com, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of lectures that are totally for free. Ozark Christian college allows me to record my, my classes. And then I put them up online for free. And I have eh, 80 to hundred hours of lectures on revelation that's on there. So you can start there. It's it's and I I try to teach it as if um, we're all starting Bible study for the very first time, mm. uh, because I I understand this is a crazy book. Um, if you're talking physical resources, um, like you know like a book, uh, there I actually would encourage a book by the name of uh, Revelations Rhapsody, okay. uh, written by Robert Lowry, who actually yeah, um, you. you know used to teach at yeah he was my professor at Lincoln whenever I went there, uh, which is. Uh, we share more than one alma mater there, Skylar. Um, uh, that book is wonderful because it just teaches you how to read the book of Revelation. It's not a, not a verse by verse. It's saying, we don't even have the tools to build this house, so let's get the tools. And then I would also, for a beginner, I would also start with um, uh, Bruce Metzger's really small book. It's only like 90 pages. How he accomplishes <laughs> going over every verse in Revelation in 90 pages, I will never guess. But Bruce Metzger's book, Breaking the Code, wonderful short little introduction um, to the concepts of Revelation. Once you want to advance further, uh, the books that I would encourage you to do, um, one would be Brian Blount, B-L-O-U-N-T, his commentary. Uh, I believe it's from around like 2000, maybe 13. Okay. Uh, maybe a little later. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's a good critical commentary. If you want the beast, kind of the, I guess that's a bad metaphor to use here. Um, if you want the really big dog commentary, a GK Beale, B-E-A-L-E. That one's early 2000s, late 90s, uh, early 2000s. Uh, that commentary in the N-I-G-T-C commentary series, that'll give you everything you'd want and way more than what you even care about. But it, it goes super deep. It's like, it's about, uh, I think it's like 18, 1900 pages. So, I mean, it's, it's a beast, but it's super thorough. Those would be the resources I would offer. Okay. That's awesome. Well, Shane, um, I, I vouch for you. I, I, especially with apocalyptic stuff, I have been on your website, just thumbing through it, looking at the resources, listening to your lectures. You know, I mean, you do stuff on Matthew, I uh, had you for Mark, you know, I just, um, it's really, if anybody listening, it's, it really is a, a fantastic there. You have fantastic stuff on your website, which I'm very, very grateful for. Um, so thank you for that. And I would definitely encourage people to go do that. Um, Ozark also has like a next level class and yeah. um, there's resources there for revelation stuff and um, another great place to, to go. Um, Shane, um, is there any last things that you would like to say about um, this topic, apocalyptic, Revelation Daniel, reading it, America, etc. Yeah, I think what I would say is this is, um, I, I really do look forward to a day whenever the churches um, uh, are no longer afraid of these texts and no longer obsessed, because I believe that the challenges uh, that the last half of the book of Daniel has and the challenge that Revelation has 
uh, is startling. Uh, matter of fact, one of my, my, my dissertation was on comparing imagery in the Roman world to the imagery in the book of Revelation. Um, and one of the things of the conclusion I came to was um, when it comes to Rome, uh, Rome for the book of Revelation is too small of a target. Uh, that, that a lot of times, you know, they'll have Revelation scholars even get obsessed over, you know, Revelation's trying to attack Rome. And it's like, no. As a matter of fact, what Revelation does is this. It clarifies who the enemy is. It says, no, if you destroy Rome, then, then, then the unholy trinity of the dragon and his two beasts will just grab another empire and replace it. Tearing down evil empires only just keeps the cycle going. Instead, our enemy is the, the red dragon, is Satan. And you fight him totally differently than you would fight an empire. How do you fight the dragon? By laying your life down like Jesus did on a cross. And so, so to me, what these texts do is they, they don't just clarify God and they don't just clarify us. They clarify the enemy. And, and in the church today, I feel like we've forgotten who the enemy is. Mm. And a lot of the times, um, you know, we, we vilify, and I'm not even saying my positions on any of this, but it's like we vilify things like Planned Parenthood and we vilify, you know, things like, you know, homosexuality. And, and again, I'm not even saying my positions on this. I'm saying in the midst of all of this, don't forget who the true enemy is. Yeah. It's the, it's the dragon. It's the, it's the, it's the sin. It's, it's Satan himself. Uh, so, so no, I, 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 I long for the church to no longer be um, caught up into the political debates and, and to be separated over donkeys and elephants, because reality is that question of, are you a donkey or an elephant? Doesn't matter. The question that matters is, are you a lamb or are you a dragon? Mm. And Revelation, Revelation makes that very clear. And I, I really hope the church regains that apocalyptic perspective. Man, Shane, that is so good. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for uh, helping us unpack and understand apocalyptic literature um, a, a lot better, <laughs> a little bit more deep, deeper and, um, and more personally. So Shane, Thank you for your time. Thank you for your contribution and everything that you do. Yeah, thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. <laughs> there was a lot there. I, I know, right? Trust me. I have re-listened to this interview multiple times, and and I have taken a ton of notes. And, and I would like to let you know that in our show notes, I have included some of the key points that Shane had mentioned throughout this conversation, as well as links to the websites and books that we talked about Next week, we're going to take a break from these heavy Bible topics as I share my interview with Pastor Eddie Lohan. And many of the people uh, in our area, they know Eddie very well. Uh, But for those of you who don't, Eddie is a pastor at a fairly large church in Springfield, Illinois called Westside Christian Church. And they are doing incredible things up there. And I had a chance to have a conversation with him about leading through crazy times like the one we're in. I mean, lessons that proved helpful in this time as well as new lessons he picked up along the way. And looking down the road, we have a lot of unknowns. And I believe that Eddie's words to us in this conversation are going to be incredibly valuable if we want to navigate this next season of life that we find ourselves in. Well, I hope this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact in your life. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week as we talk with Eddie Lowen on all things leadership.